Hello and welcome to the Birthing Dads podcast. This is your host, Stephen Kennedy. This is a podcast about pregnancy, birth and early parenting. Brought to you by the Repair Foundation. Yay! Perhaps you could just start with your name and your background. My name is Dr. Howard Chilton, and I, uh, for the last 40 years, I've been a neonatologist, which is a, a newborn baby physician. Um, 25 years of that would be in intensive care, and the rest is in what I call reassurology. That is dealing with parents of healthy babies where things are perhaps not going uh, as they're expecting. I've done a lot of parent education. I've written a uh, several books which this is one and which is the new version which is the new edition which is on sale which delightfully has my daughter who is a lactation consultant and a midwife and a and a a wise woman helping with the with the breastfeeding chapter and I used to give a uh, I used to be at the Royal Hospital for Women and Prince of Wales private hospital in Sydney and I used to give a talk each week to the parents on the postnatal ward about what they could expect about their baby. And that went on, actually thinking back, it probably went on for about 15 years. And it started uh, a talk about fascinating things about babies, which was the wonderful things that actually newborns are capable of doing and the wonderful ways they can communicate with their parents. And then it morphed into a lot of anthropology and evolutionary biology, which I thought was really critical for parents to understand uh, before they get handed a baby. Um, Critical to that is how immature that baby is. And if this isn't clearly understood, if you're still in the old fashioned idea that babies are uh, sentient little beings that can manipulate you. And if you're not the boss, you'll get into all kinds of trouble and you have to put down a firm, firm routine and schedule. Otherwise your life will fall apart. If you are in receipt of that kind of information, which you often might be from the previous generation, uh, it can be a disaster if you're trying to, Uh, Your expectations for the baby uh, is too um, out of whack with the reality. So I tried to bring parents down to the biological reality of their baby. Uh, Great introduction. Thanks. This is all about first time expectant fathers and their transition into fatherhood and, and kind of softening the landing for them. It's about trying to give them an understanding of, of perinatal support uh, for not only for themselves, but also for their families. And I think you, you will have recognised yourself in your own work that there's been a real kind of uh, a great development in the dad space where dads are more engaged, more involved. They really want to, to be, you know, a, a part of this process and, and, and as engaged and informed as they can be these days. I think something really important is, is I guess, the, the spectrum of baby. Oh, look, I always show my parents the normal distribution curve for baby, for baby temperament. You know, you've got at one end, you've got the self-soother. This is the baby, you've, your neighbour's baby who went sleeping through the night from the day they got him home, you know, right through to the other end where you've got these super sensitive babies who will not go on their own into a cot 
or into a, a pram or a carrier. Don't, they don't mind carriers, but as long as they're in contact with someone, they're, they're con contented, but only just. And they seem to need feeding all the time and they seem to need nurturing all the time. And I have to say that this baby, when you think about it in evolutionary terms, is the efficient one. The baby who lets his mum sleep all night for eight hours. Firstly, her breastfeeding won't go that well if she's allowed to not breastfeed for eight hours. But also, what is that baby thinking? He's in danger of being consumed by a saber-toothed tiger. So I'm always very uh, clear about the fact we are not, we are not grazing animals. And grazing animals have to spend a great deal of time eating. So the mum goes off and she'll graze and, and she can't carry her baby because she's, she's got all four hooves on the ground. Uh, so in order to keep her baby safe, she puts them in a little burrow in the ground and they are programmed to not say anything and not even poop. She's not there because they don't want to attract predators. That's how they keep themselves safe. Mum returns our deer every eight hours, lifts them out of the net, they lick the bum, the baby has a poop, they put them back in the nest, she feeds them, and then she goes off grazing again for another eight hours. Now that's fine for grazers, but we, and those milks are really, really concentrated. They'll last your baby deer eight hours before they're hungry again. Fine. We are not like that. We can't expect our babies to be like that. And we can't expect their programming to allow you to get away for that long. So we're at the other end of the spectrum. We are continuous contact species primates. Uh, milk is a continuous contact milk. And that's what babies expect of us. Continuous contact. And the way a baby keeps himself or herself safe is... Firstly, she feeds all the time, so mum can't get away. And when she tries to get away, they make a tremendous din and don't allow that to happen. So those babies, those super sensitive babies are behaving evolutionarily just right. But they're hard work. So uh, for, a, for a dad, how do you think uh, a new that spectrum understanding that? You didn't really, you mentioned the, the two extremes, but you, you yeah. didn't cover that. that. Well, in, what in the middle on average expect? Well, in the middle, you've got a baby. Most babies can cope with not being in contact with the body every minute of every day. And uh, for the first several weeks, they're going to need frequent feeding. Mother is going to be unbelievably tired. The attention the baby requires is relentless. You cannot describe how tired you're going to be with a baby this immature. Because I did, I, mean, I think I probably alluded to that, but our babies are the most immature placental mammals on the planet. We have them really, really early in gestation because we have an enormous brain and our women have narrow pelvises because they're bipeds. They walk around if you're, if you're um, pelvis is too wide, you will tend to waddle. So we have this issue where babies are uh, pushed out who are very, very immature. So, uh, Winnicott, who was a famous pediatrician, psychoanalyst uh, in the 50s, he said, babies are not persons. 
they are a mass of conflicting reflexes and actually bent on survival, which is really what they're all about. So you can't appeal to logic. You can't appeal to their sense of time. They have no sense of time. There is only the present. And if they're hungry, the universe is filled with hunger. And it really is a matter of dealing with this need for intense attention. And it goes on for years. So you can't actually describe that to parents until they experience it. If the parents just, if they take home just that understanding of how immature their baby is going to be and how trying to get them into a pattern or into a routine or anything of that nature uh, is just not possible, their expectations will be fulfilled. Whereas a lot of the old-fashioned baby books which say, you know, 20 to 5, you do this, and 20 past 5, you do that, and this is how you run your life. They are bought by parents. Parents wish those, those books were true, and they sell millions of copies, but they don't happen to work. And so what you have is a baby who is a minute-by-minute minute project, and it's always changing, and just when you think you've got it made, they change because they're developing at an enormous speed all the time. They're wiring up their brain. As soon as they escape from the womb, they only have 25% of their brain formed by the time they're born. And then they start, once they've escaped from that little pelvis, then they start to pile on neural tissue at a fantastic rate. 1,000 to 10,000 connections a second is being made in their little brains. And their actual brain weight doubles in the year after they're born and it's all connections and the connections relate to obviously genetics but it also relates to how they're being brought up and how they are being managed and how their behavior is being reinforced or inhibited and that is where parenting modern parenting comes into its own because we now realize that how babies are wired up for a lifetime of happiness or not depends on what happens in those early months and years when they are just laying down all this basic stuff. In the first year and beyond, but especially in their first year, they lay down their emotional intelligence. That is, is life secure? Am I loved? Uh, do my parents, are they, are they reliable people? And do they love me? And, and, and does that have uh, conditions attached to it? Do they only love me if this or if that? Or do they love me unconditionally? And that stuff is the, is the neural substance laid down in their first year. And I have to say, it is the nurturing side of parenting, often exhibited by the mother, but it can be exhibited by fathers as well, just not quite so acutely, uh, which happens in the first year. And one of the, 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 the hormones that are the hallmarks of these are the oxytocin and the prolactin. Now, these go up like rockets in women when they have a baby. They have high levels of oxytocin, high levels of prolactin, helps her breastfeeding. The oxytocin is the hormone of, of connectedness and calm and loving and cuddles and all this sort of thing. And if you do work on fathers, you find there oxytocin level rises and the more contact they have with their baby 
the more their oxytocin rises. And they even get rises in their prolactin as well. Interestingly, they also get a suppression of their testosterone. And the more the testosterone is low to start with and suppressed even lower, the more nurturing and the more loving those fathers are. And the fathers we now know can induce that by doing as much touching and feeling and cuddling and nurturing of their baby, it makes all that stuff go so much more easily. And it takes a load off mother as well. To, to, to help the survival of the baby, essentially, isn't it? It's, it's about... Absolutely. You know. I mean, it's, it's no coincidence that uh, we, as a species, form pair bonds. You know, we don't have a monarchy like in other primate groups where there's an alpha male and a bunch of girls and bunches of babies and a lot of disappointed boys. You've got pair bonds because it's efficient and it, it worked for our, our babies because unlike other primates even, we've got 25 years of parenting per baby. And it, that's a the very, very long childhood. And somebody worked out that to grow a baby into an 18-year-old takes 13 million calories. And you can't acquire 13 million calories to pump into your baby on your own. So we've got to have, we've got to have pair bonds. We've got to have bunches of pair bonds uh, in, in tribes. And we've got to have the extended family. And while I'm on the, t- on the extended family, maternal grandmas are really valuable and have been since the dawn of time for helping with the nurturing and the bringing up of the babies. And in fact, if you look at um, developing world tribes, it's the, it's the grandman, grandmas who do most of the gathering. It's possible also that the mother, they tend to be hyper anxious and a little protective and you have to be absolutely reassuring that you're good with the baby. And you do that with practice. And the sooner the better. And I loved it when I worked at the Prince of Wales Private. And we'd have, you know, cesarean sections. And then I'd uh, go into the postnatal ward. And there's mums still in, po- in the post-operative ward being sent to the postnatal. But dad's got the baby parked on his chest. Yes. And uh, on his bare chest. Remember, you have oxytocin receptors in your chest. And babies are designed like a socket and a plug to receive your chest sensory organs in order to get all that oxytocin going, both in baby and in, in father or mother. You mentioned grandmothers there, and there was, uh, it, it struck me that uh, there's also a, a tug in both directions with grandmothers because they do have that traditional idea of, oh, don't overmother it. And, uh, you know, as you were mentioning before, so sometimes there can be, I've, I've experienced that personally, you know, I've got a three year old and, and my mother. Oh do this and says this, oh, you have to do it this way and that's how I did it, you know, and I think, well, actually the understanding of the science around this has moved on, Mum. So. Yeah. You should send her off to hunt and gather <laughs> and you should uh, look after the baby. Honestly, the, the previous generation, truly, uh, they, were, they thought it was really critically important to bring up babies in a uh, sort of disciplined and rigorous and routine-based way and we know that that uh, was extremely unhelpful. It it was, you know, they were the same the same generation that wanted to send their eight year olds to boarding school if they could. So I mean, there's a whole different um, 
set of imperatives there, but we now can be run by our biology and not by the culture, which is really what we're talking about there. And I'd be interested in your uh, analysis of uh, the the parenting of boys, younger boys. Uh, the younger boys are much, you know, higher maintenance. Uh, the girls are a little bit easier. So getting dads to understand that, as well as understanding that in the first year, in that perinatal period, the mother is central and he has to un- understand and, and he comes in later with his masculinity. Absolutely. And I think that... I've written, uh, I wrote two blogs on it. It's on my Facebook um, and my website, Boys Will Be Boys 1 and 2. And it really talks about the the neuroscience of boys. Boys have got a problem. They are being bathed in testosterone as fetuses and various surges during neonatal life. And the thing about testosterone, it slows neural growth. So boys are developing more slowly than the girls in their house and they need more nurturing. They are babies for longer. And for during their first year, they need the nurturing of the, they, they need the nurturing of the female energy. So I'm not saying it just has to be a woman. I'm saying they need the female nurturing, the cuddling, the touching, the holding, the reassurance during their first year. As they move into their second year, that's where the male energy kicks in. The first year is the emotional intelligence, which is mostly posited in the right side, the right cerebral hemisphere, which is the emotional brain, if you want to think in, you know, sort of uh, buzz terms. The left side, that is your cognitive development and your executive functions and your regression kicks in in year two. And that's when dads come into their own because it's left-sided, you know, the idea that women are Venus and men are Mars, all this fundamental, you know, buzzy difference. But there's an essence to that, which is men tend to think left brain. They tend to think logically, which is why dads try and fix things. And they, whereas women tend to deal with things holistically. In a baby's second year, they need to learn that logic and how cognitive things work. They also need control of their aggression, especially little boys. And dads are the ones to do that. And the little boys are watching their dads all the time. Now, during their first year, dads can start to feel really irrelevant because every time the baby hurts himself, he rushes off to his mum and gets a cuddle, pushes dad out of the way and wants a hug. Fine. It happens second year, third year. It can almost happen in reverse. And we look at the behavior of mothers and fathers with their babies of either gender and you find that mothers tend to keep their babies close and want to hold them and not let them explore little but the fathers in their second year and beyond like to see how far the little boy will go and then they will look after them they'll keep them safe but they won't keep them necessarily as close. And they have a very physical way of looking after their babies, which is a wonderful thing for the baby to experience. These two way of loving, one's the the cuddling and the nurturing, the other one's being thrown up into the air and caught. And that is important for the the, uh, complete 
development of a baby's psyche. And I won't say especially girls, because uh, especially boys, because girls need it as well. And in fact, there's no doubt the data is in that the presence of fathers by uh, in the house, uh, in, in the home when girls are born means that they have better cognitive functioning, they have more emotional resilience, and they have better self-esteem. And they look on their dad as a model from which they judge all men in the future. So you've got to be really careful about the way, certainly the way you interact with your partner. And I'm a real fan of overt affection in front of babies so that they know that women should be treated with love and affection and gentleness. And, and boys especially, but boys, of course, need that aggression. They're churning through all this testosterone, which needs to be brought under control. And only dads can do that really effectively. The male energy can do that effectively. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to uh, also hear what you think about the because I think some men struggle with the idea of overmothering of their child and the idea that you know oh we can't treat we can't treat them like this for too long because we we need to make a man of him or a, they need to grow up. What, what are your thoughts on? I think that that is the critical problem uh, that is now manifest around the world. We know that the the um, level of um, psychological and neuropsychological problems in boys is going through the roof and it has a lot to do with very early child care where the boys being in this sensitive zone where they're really terrified they're being separated from loved ones and put into daycare this is not so much in australia but in the united states that they go into daycare at six weeks and they stay there for eight hours a day for the next several years and not surprisingly you end up with some very unfortunate results when it comes to follow-up of many of those boys of course there's a normal distribution curve for their sensitivity of course uh, but nevertheless the the these babies and the little boys especially need to be treated as babies you can't overdo it you'll know when they're ready to not be mothered or fathered they will try and distance themselves and you know that's when you see these fathers herring after their their three-year-old in the park and the, the and you know the three-year-old's heading for the creek you know, but this because this is because the three-year-old is so confident and so secure that he knows he's safe because this guy will come after me. Let's see if I can outrun him. And that's fine. But the child moves away, not the father. And teaching children to be manly and keeping their emotions in and all this, that is what creates the pathology from teenagers onwards. And the, and the levels of pathology are now skyrocketing. And girls, of course, girls need the same level. That, but you see, when you get problems in, in their first few years of their emotional stability, boys tend to externalize it when they are older into aggression and, and anger, whereas girls tend to internalize it. So they get into anxiety, hypervigilance and depression. And that leads to the food problems and the weight problems, all this sort of stuff. So they, the two different genders manifest 
insecurity in different ways. And both fathers, mothers of course, but fathers as well, definitely reduce the problems and the incidence of those problems. So with all that in mind, how does a first-time dad, or any dad essentially, how does a, a new dad build attachment to their, to their newborn? By contact. By, by not being put off by anyone around and getting, getting in there and getting the hands dirty. Now, I will say one thing. Many men are not aware of how gory and challenging labor is. And, you know, you have this wonderful uh, excitement during the pregnancy and you have all these plans. And then suddenly this person who he loves is going through a very intense situation, physical situation. And he is her protector and guardian and, and lover and and that can be very, very challenging. And in fact, a study showed that 25% of men don't quite recover from being in the labor uh, suite uh, during the birth of their child uh, and, and finding it all in immensely challenging. And this has got nothing to do with toughness or bravery. It's got to do with actually probably something that happens much earlier on in your life, whether you can adapt and have the resilience to deal with with standing back and allowing a situation to occur which you are desperate to fix because that's what you've done for the rest before the rest of your life and now you keep thinking you ought to fix it and you can't you have to just let let it go and if you have to leave the room yeah that's one of the things i'm trying to create that idea of, uh, of whatever experience is required to keep adrenaline out of the room because he'll be in an adrenalised state and he might pass that on to her and uh, adrenaline is absolutely the, the enemy of labour. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so uh, immediately postpartum, six weeks, uh, you know, if he's lucky, he's got his six, six weeks off. Uh, hopefully he's taking a lot of paternity leave. You know, maybe yep. talk a little bit just about the, the supreme importance of those of that first couple of months and how he supports, uh, you know, the, the mother's postnatal depletion. Firstly, I think it's really important to understand how important the support people are to breastfeeding, the actual act of breastfeeding. If you, you've got to be 100% for it and you've got to be absolutely supportive. And remember that um, men's hormones rise with the birth of the baby and they continue to rise but the mothers tends to dip because they've lost their placenta and they've lost all these warm, pink, cuddly hormones. And often up day three, day four, they're, they're crying and they're in a heap and they're feeling very low and everyone's taking notice of the baby and they're ignoring me. That sort of feeling. And of course the baby gets jaundiced and they might take him to the nursery. All these things start cascading in and dad has to be absolutely supportive of this and understanding i mean it's it's so the the amount from here on from here on the amount of maternal engrossment is incredible so the mothers become totally focused on their baby because that's the way the hormones and their brains drive them and all of a sudden the 
fathers uh, are not the center of their partner's life. It's very, I see, a lot of, I see a lot of jealous guys at around six weeks who have been totally sidelined. I feel like I'm an ATM, that's all, you know, that sort of attitude. But this is something you're just gonna have to just deal with it because that engrossment is all part of the, um, the, the body's way of dealing with the relentlessness of the, of the fatigue and the effort needed to bring up a baby, these highly dependent little things who seem to be totally helpless and, and you have an absolutely no training and you've been given this person who looks like if you don't stay awake that you'll be, you'll, you know, they'll, they'll fall off twigs. So you, it, it's really hard to adjust to this and dads just need to hang in there. And I will say to think, I've always said to parents, remember, they don't look it, but babies are tough as old boots. As long as you're sensible and you love them and you do the normal things, feeding, changing, keeping them warm, it's not, it's not that hard because babies will, are very resilient and they'll deal with it. Yeah, I like to use the analogy that, uh, because I experienced this myself. When I, I, at first it was like porcelain, you know, it's like the That's it. expensive china and then within a month of like rubber, <laughs> you know, it's kind of... You, Absolutely, you, yeah. So that's a great comment um, for, for dads to know. Um, how about uh, replicating the environment of the womb uh, in those first six weeks? Oh, yeah. I think that's right. I mean, the thing is to uh, your baby makes this massive transition from being snugged up in the womb and being fed intravenously to coming out into this incredible high stimulation world uh, where there's all this room before they've been snugged up and suddenly where they're putting me in this cot. Why we would put our babies in a cot is a, is, is craziness. I mean, it's a cage after all. And the baby belongs next to your body or as close to your body as possible, making absolutely sure that there are no risk factors, no booze, no drugs, no cigarettes, no um, soft coverings. And, you know, make sure that the baby can't, fall off the bed when you're on it. Never take a baby onto a sofa or a, um, an unconventional sleeping arrangement, which is, might be unsafe. But babies like to stay close and they like to be reminded, as you say, of being in the womb. So they love the heartbeat. That's why you tend to hold babies on the left. We tend to pat babies at maternal heart rate because that's what they're used to. You can sing to them. And when we talk to babies, we talk in motherese, which is very high um, uh, frequency because that's what babies are used to their ears attuned to the higher frequencies. And we, uh, they like the smell of their mum. They love nuzzling against their mother especially and very soon they start to recognize dad's smell as well and the, the, the other thing that they we always forget is it's fairly low stimulation uh, in the womb there's not a lot of uh, Netflix like activity and so you've got to make sure that uh, nobody is too much in the baby's face strangers come in and they pick babies up and they say hello baby and this poor baby has got these eyes boring into him and this is fine if they're mother's or father's eyes but all these strangers getting a piece of the baby each 
each year, and it's probably time to start thinking about it, doing it again. I wrote a blog about Christmas colic, the way babies start really screaming the roof down, especially in the evenings, in, in early December and late December, because all these rellos, all this excitement, all this stuff happening. And so by the evening, they're just crazy. And you need to keep them calm. You're trying to replicate the life in the womb for about three months. We know that about three months, babies wire up the ability, if they're getting too wound up, to look away and ignore everyone and calm themselves. But up until that three months, they're not very good at it at all. And they tend to, you gaze at a baby, they'll gaze right back again. And it's very intense. And babies have no ability to switch off from this intense stimulation. So sometimes I often see a baby six, eight weeks, and I put him on my um, uh, bed to examine him, and I'm looking at him, and he starts to look at me with this tense expression on his face, and I look away, and I examine him looking over into the corner of the room, and he settles down. You look at him again, and he starts getting more excited, and he settles down, because certainly... The, the, the heavy gaze of strangers and people they don't know is very much too much for many babies. And so you've got to keep everything muted for a baby in their first three months until they can take some measure of control over the amount of stimulation they're getting. Another thing I wanted to ask you about is co-sleeping. I am, I am very pro-safe bed sharing mainly because we know that it is, um, it's what babies want and it's what mothers want and it, what, it's what uh, breastfeeding needs and it settles everybody. Now, whether dads are involved or not really depends on how they feel about it. Now, we know that if you've got a situation where dad is absolutely for it and very positive about it and is absolutely clear what the risk factors of bed sharing is because we don't have sleeping arrangements like the Neolithic or the Pleistocene. We've got modern beds and some of them are not ideal. And hang on, I will get my favorite book on the subject, which is James McKenna's book. And this has a picture of what he can, and he's an anthropologist and he's got all the data on mothers and babies in bed together. And that's what he thought was the best way for parents to bed share. King-sized mattress on the floor, baby on, flat on the back, no bed coverings uh, other than what's covering the parents, low down. And anyway, so, but remember, don't forget the risk factors and, um, and, and couch, sofas and couches. You know, I've met a couple of times in my career where uh, a baby starts to whinge and cry. So dad goes in to the uh, parental bedroom, picks the baby up. And, uh, he doesn't want to uh, have his partner wake up. So he goes into the living room and falls asleep on the sofa to disastrous results. Mm. So you've got to be really careful about having absolutely zero compromise with the risk factors. With that, the risk is no greater. There is nothing inherently wrong with bed sharing because that's what Homo sapiens has always done. What we have are cultural things happening later, cigarette smoking, alcohol in particular, which are not good uh, 
for that situation and our definite risk factors. But with the elimination of risk factors, it is, and with the both parents being enthusiastic and knowing what the deal is, and I have to say, I got a chapter in this book about how to do it safely. And I hold another chapter on SIDS too, so you can look at the two and see where the where the dangers lie and where and the, the advantages of the safe aspects. Then I, I I recommend it all the time, as long as both the parents are enthusiastic. And there are some parents who say, absolutely not. It's not what I can do. I feel too anxious about it. I can't sleep because I'm worried about rolling on to him. All this sort of stuff. In that case, a, a, a cot next to the bed or one of those co-bedders that click onto the side of the bed are fine. They're just as good. But babies like to be nice and close to their mums and the closer they are the more often they feed and the more often they feed the more successful the breastfeeding is and it lasts for longer in life so the mothers who bed share with their babies and have successful feeding that way they give it up later on in the baby's life and while i'm on the subject do not think you have to give up encourage your partner to give up uh, the baby's breastfeeding at a year or two it can go on for as long as it is mutually satisfying and there are no teenagers who are still breastfeeding and it is and they the ones who breastfeed for longer tend to be more empathic tend more in tune with their emotions and tend to be much better um, wired up in terms of emotional resilience yeah my little three-year-old is uh, still on the breast just occasionally and you know yeah slowly get you know less and less and just on on breastfeeding i guess uh, the average dad doesn't know that the long list of wonderful hormones and chemicals and nutrients that come with breast milk as opposed to formula milk so maybe you could um address that well it's there are about two thousand substances in breast milk and we have a, a vague idea about what a, a handful of them are all about and the rest we haven't a clue. All we know is that they're there and they must have a purpose. We know that babies who are breastfed are given a perfect cocktail, not only nutritionally. You see, it's much more than food. It's got hormones and enzymes and ISO things and all sorts of wonderful components which are critical to the maximization of a baby's growth. Now, you're talking about the brain, which doubles its its weight in a year, and the breast milk is a perfect nutrient for brain growth. It's been designed that way. If you look at other milks in the animal kingdom, you can tell what kind of uh, fetuses you are give, given, uh, and, and the, the milk we are uh, given is, is what primarily we need for our fetus. And our milk is low protein, low um, fat, two to four percent, protein about 0.8 percent, but very high carbohydrates, very high lactose, and lactose goes into your brain, galactolipids. And so it is perfectly, it's perfect brain food. It's also got a perfect cocktail of antibodies, which are generated by the mother's body in response to the germs in her environment. So she's actually giving her baby a cocktail of custom-made antibodies for all the things in that baby's environment. And it's changing all the time. And we know that toddler milk, for instance, is different from newborn milk. 
Uh, in fact, there is some evidence to suggest that boy milk and girl milk are subtly different. Wow. And all of these things are designed specifically for our individual baby. And you can uh, do all the studies you like, but it's very hard to tease out. I mean, back in the day, we used to say, you got extra, an eight, extra eight points of IQ. Now, this may or may not be true, but it really depends on the, uh, it's so hard to control for all the other variables with IQ. So all of these things are arguable. But what is not arguable is that the breast milk as delivered to the individual baby from the individual mother is custom made for her baby. And formula is great food, but it's only food. And it's sort of, they've, they've, messed around with the cow's milk trying to give it the same level of protein by reducing the protein and reducing the fat and and boosting the carbohydrate and all this stuff to try and make it look like breast milk and it doesn't perform badly and some of the formulas now they've got long chain fatty acids in them which are specifically those fatty acids which are specifically for brain growth and they're called gold formulas and there's no doubt studies show that uh, you get if you compare gold formulas and normal formulas the babies with the gold formulas get enhanced retinal development and then your retina is the outpouching of your brain so there's no doubt those substances going into the right place but it's still mostly just food and doesn't have all the other stuff and of course the other stuff is not just stuff in the milk it's the act of breastfeeding the act of breastfeeding actually teaches babies to, con- to control their appetite. There's a substance in the milk called adiponectin, which actually re- suppresses appetite. And so you get babies who will feed till they're satisfied and then stop. And when they're hungry again, whoa, that's only an hour ago. Never mind. Feed again. And, they, uh, and, and what they're doing is they are learning how to regulate their appetite. So we know the incidence of childhood obesity is lower in breastfed babies, even though some of them look like Michelin men after four or five or six months because they're just feeding all the time. Fine, they don't get fat later because they've learned that they can control their appetite and nobody is imposing anything. Whereas if you're a bottle feeder, the temptation is, oh, come on, another 20 mils, dear. You know, come on. And you try and give them X amount of feed. Whereas if you monitor babies who are breastfed, sometimes they take a little feed, sometimes they take a lot, sometimes they feed frequently, other times they won't feed for five hours. And that's the way they learn how to satisfy their appetite. And it tends to give them this regulatory ability later on, both when they start solids and as they grow up. Fantastic. I was wondering if you might be able to give expectant dads an idea about settling, you know, so baby comes to them, they're crying. They might be, they might actually have an, like a negative energy response to the baby. The baby says, what are you doing to me? And there's a feedback loop there. And so, Maybe just is there or maybe you could talk to that. Look, I think that the the settling of babies depends obviously on the temperament of the baby. Some babies are easy to settle and some babies are really, really hard to settle. But generally speaking, in the first eight to 12 weeks, if you replicate life in the womb 
That is, you hold them snug and contain. So I'm, a, I'm at inter-swaddling and hold, because that's what babies are, are used to. And if you hold them nice and snugly, and you pat them at maternal heart rate, and you sing to them, and you stay calm, and you don't take it personally if they're noisy, because sometimes, as long as babies are crying, are still crying, and you're doing your best, it's fine. They're not coming to any harm. The babies who are coming to harm are the babies who are crying on their own and feel they've been abandoned. And it's abandonment that affects your brain, not crying per se. Once you, you'll get better and better at it. But, but let me say, the average baby at six weeks of age cries or is unsettled for about three hours a day. That's average. And so half are crying more, half are crying less. And if you've got a baby up on the, you know, nine to 12 hour crying, unsettled, fussiness range, they are very difficult. The first thing you think of when you've got an unsettled baby, is he hungry? Oh, we fed an hour ago. Don't care. Feed him again. So babies, when in doubt, they're hungry. They really empty their stomach very rapidly, certainly under an hour. The point is that overfeeding them is not a big issue. It is not an issue. Obviously, when you're formula feeding, then overfeeding is a whole different ballgame and you're trying to override the baby's thing. But when in doubt, if they're unsettled, if they're hungry, they will stay unsettled. So you make sure they're not hungry. And if they are, uh, and then you cuddle them and you calm them and you sing to them and you dance around and you'll find something will work. And if that doesn't work, get somebody else in, hand the baby over, go outside, take a deep breath, walk around, and then go in and try again. And you'll find that suddenly the baby, you, you won't recognize the baby. They're half asleep or, you know, it, it's just, I see more babies with parents who are concerned about their unsettledness than any other single issue. Now, remember that sleeping and settling in babies in the first few months are the same thing. But the thing about babies when they're sleeping, new babies go into sleep very gradually. They're light sleep, light sleep, light sleep, light sleep. Deep sleep might take 20 minutes, half an hour, and then they'll cycle out again because they cycle in and out every 50 minutes. So, but if you let the baby, if you expect the baby to drop into deep sleep straight away, you're disappointed. That doesn't happen until three months or beyond. Then it's a different ballgame. But with babies, sometimes you just hold them close and you might need to settle them down and you might get 20 minutes before they recycle and come out and you have to start all over again. And that's okay. Do not let anybody tell you that unless your baby sleeps, his brain will not develop. That is one of the most stupid and harmful things you can tell parents. Uh, And unfortunately, there are some people who make a living out of telling parents this, and it's just not true. And tired babies who are not stressed sleep. And remember that babies, that stressed, stressing babies is there when they're churning out cortisol. That's because they are concerned or anxious about their environment. And what reassures them is some big primate's body next to them. It's very fundamental.
Yeah, fantastic. So you were referring to the sleep training industry, were you? I was. Yeah, I know. It's a travesty. It's absolutely. It's it's highly cultural. It's highly cultural and the idea. And in fact, what they're teaching the babies is to become a grazing animal. That is, you've been abandoned, so uh, there are predators about. So if I were you, baby, I would shut up or you'll be eaten. So the babies do. Mm. And that's why this, you know, what Furby used to call spaced waiting. You'd leave them for 10 minutes and then 15 and then 20 minutes. Eventually they will be quiet only because they think they're in danger and they think they've been abandoned. Mm. An unhelpful thing to believe when you're wiring up your emotional intelligence yeah wow that's I, I wasn't totally aware of the you know the science behind that but that's mm. it's so sad I, I just don't understand it um actually this is interesting um something i wrote in one of my books and this is about as the children grow you see dads need to give their children their undivided attention uh, no computers, no newspapers, these sorts of things. And they, and the fathers need that to listen to their children. Now, I can tell you, because I've had it myself, that the need to give my children and my grandchildren information, I keep wanting to teach them stuff. And that's not helpful. It really isn't. What I should do is listen to them and have their questions and then steer them towards the correct answer. But trying to fix things, trying to give them um, complete information about a subject is unhelpful for anyone under school age. Once they're at school, you can help them with their homework. But again, never do, don't criticize them. Don't prey on their, when things don't go well, don't mention that stuff. Keep it positive, but listen to them and try and guide them rather than take over and tell them how it is, and tell them how to do it. Because, and I can tell you that because that was always my, my um, style. Mm. And, it's, and I can hear myself as a, as a father completely blowing my daughters away by telling them why the sky is blue and they haven't even asked me. That's really good, actually, for me to hear that as well, because I, I'm guilty of that too. I just, you know, you want it's to... A, it's, a male, it's a male way of processing the world, and it's, um, it's, it, it's not always helpful, except if you're a teacher, and then you're in a different environment. <laughs> Thanks so much. It's wonderful. Okay. Good to talk to you. See you later. I'd like to acknowledge the Darawal people as the traditional custodians of the land upon which... This podcast is recorded and I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging.